Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan and this week my guest is Colm O'Gorman, founder of One in Four and executive director of Amnesty International in Ireland. Colm's story of surviving and thriving in life is inspirational. While talking openly about abuse is so important, I am aware that it can be triggering for some listeners. So please know in advance that while Colm begins by talking about recent events, we do go back in time and Colm talks candidly about being repeatedly raped by a priest. Colm O'Gorman, thank you so much for uh, joining me on this Super Brain podcast. We know each other a few years, actually. Uh, the first time we met was, is it five years? Of course. Five years, we yeah. Yeah, we, we, it's not that we're that intimate or that close that we're actually keeping tabs on how many years we know each other. It's just we met in the context of marriage equality, yeah. um, campaigning for marriage equality in Ireland. And Colm was a very, very big figure in that campaign and did a lot of television debating and also in your capacity as executive director of Amnesty. Amnesty Ireland led a fabulous campaign, which I played a tiny little part in outside, as as my husband calls it. I had my uh, James Larkin moment outside the GPO <laughs> where we spoke and, and yeah. my arms. Ah, it was it, you know, when you have a passion for something, you know, it works. But gosh, things have moved on. I mean, but that's the context that we met and we kind of interact. And I mean, actually, it brings me to something that I was wanting to talk to you about anyway, because during the context of that, you were subjected to the most horrific abuse online, even on TV and in debates and, you know, very personal abuse outside the issues associated with marriage equality. I mean, people got very, very personal, not just about you, but about your children. I mean, how do you cope with that? How, how do you get through? And I mean, five years ago, that was awful. But I actually think the internet in, in a sense, more generally is getting worse, you know, for everybody. Yeah, the ease of access that the internet gives allows people perhaps to be a bit more gratuitous than they might normally be, or at least it makes it easier for people to just throw out a fence. But people have always done it. You know, I have a, I have a, a little file of uh, letters stored away or somewhere that I would have gotten over the years. And you know, every single one of them is as abusive as anything that was ever said to me online. And they would arrive, have arrived in our post box over the years, you know, so going back 15 years right. or more. I mean, I got my first okay. death threat in 2002. Um, oh my God. And, and, and that was because of the work that I was doing then to challenge the church and the state in the face of clerical sexual abuse, the sexual abuse of children by clergy. So, you know, you, you just develop a very, very thick skin. Now, that sounds grand and it sounds like that means everything is OK, but actually it, it isn't. Because no matter how thick the skin that you develop, the reality is that particularly when this targets your family 
or when it mm. targets you and the people who love you are just standing there watching all of this happen, that has a very significant impact on them um, yeah. and on their well-being and on their mental health. Um, and then that in turn becomes more stressful for you because yeah. you're realizing that what you're putting your out there for, yeah. that's your choice, but they have no choice. Yeah. And, and also they get pulled into it. I mean, over the years, and actually on marriage equality was one thing, but the work that we did on reproductive rights and in the run up to, the, to securing the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment and then the campaign itself during that referendum, that was infinitely more extreme. You know, over a four year right. period there, really, it got really, really unpleasant. I mean, there were times when I'd regularly have stuff that was there was stuff thrown at us that named our children and that said, you know, dark things would, would emerge from our house in few and years. And uh, they'd name the kids and then say they're being raised by two ephibophiles, you know, effectively saying that myself and my husband were sexual offenders and, yeah. and that we were abusing our children and that kind of stuff. And you'd report this stuff to Twitter and they'd look and say it didn't breach their rules. And, and then there'd be an outcry. I, I just and, don't get that. Yeah, really, really bizarre stuff. But I mean, you know, the, the net point is, is that it's one thing to develop a way of coping with that kind of stuff and to let it wash over you. It's another thing when the people that you love, the most intimate relationships in your life with your spouse and with your children are pulled into it and where they're being targeted uh, mm-hmm. almost as in a kind of a collateral damage way. That has a massive, massive impact. So, I mean, you know, by October of 2018, I mean, six months after the repeal the eighth referendum, I was very, very burnt out. Um, Were you? Yeah, I mean, I, I I took a couple of weeks off and we, we went to Portugal when we were allowed to do things like go to Portugal. Yes. And, um, and really, it was in October that I began to realise just how burnt out I was because I was stopping for long enough for it all to begin to catch up and it just really... Yeah. Me. And how did that manifest, Colin? If- just absolutely exhausted. Well, I mean, you know, we had a couple of things happen. We went immediately from marriage equality into the work on abortion and reproductive rights. And then that obviously increased in terms of intensity over the years. And then the referendum itself was in May of 2018. But then a few months after that, the Pope decided to come to Ireland and 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 it's not that I had an expectation that that was necessarily going to be a big moment. But before they arrived, the church effectively started saying, well, we're not going to talk about the whole issue of clerical sexual abuse. It's not going to be dealt with. That's not the, the reason for this visit. And because of all of the work that I'd done and because of my own case, um, I got more and more pulled into that. So actually that became a really intense period in about the six weeks to the run up to the visit by Pope Francis. Yes. And I recall that around that visit because I actually remember being up there one day outside our Garden of Remembrance in Dublin Mm. around that. And just for listeners to the podcast, actually, more than half my listeners actually are based outside Ireland. So just to kind of give a bit of context there, Colm is probably the the only person on the planet who sued the Pope or have others followed suit or were you you have had to go now well, you were one no, of the I, first I think a few of us around the world have started but I launched my case in 1998 yeah so yeah so I'm, I'm one of them which but, is quite a long time ago now yeah yeah and and then obviously you know I'd, I'd worked from then on as I learned more and more I began to work more and more in, in trying to work to get to the truth of what had happened not just in my own case, but in the case of thousands upon thousands of other people initially here in Ireland, but then it became obviously a significant global issue. So I, I was very involved in both domestic work, but also global work to try to force some level of accountability for what had happened across the Catholic Church. And regularly, whenever this issue surfaces at an international level, I get contacted and asked to comment on it, which I'm happy to do because it's not an issue that has, has gone away. I think it's important to focus on it. So when when the Pope was coming here, that became 
a fairly intense focus. And bizarrely, I, I hadn't fully planned for it. I actually intended to just be away. I just thought I'm just going to go away. But we hadn't been able to get away at that time. So I ended up being here and it, it just became incredibly busy. And the burnout manifested because for the first time in my life, I lost my voice. Oh, right. OK. I remember being on a main primetime show here in, in Ireland debating with a, a Catholic bishop about it. And I literally had laryngitis and could barely speak. And I was doing oh about goodness. 15 or 20 interviews a day with international media. And we had this massive event planned for the Sunday that the Pope was here as well, which is a really important event that was about solidarity and healing. So I was doing at that point anything from 10 to 15 interviews a day with international media in the week in the run up to the Pope's visit itself. And we also had a very large public event that we'd organised at very, very short notice. Really, what we were trying to do was to offer an opportunity for people to stand in solidarity, not against something, but to stand for something, for us to come together and just support and stand in solidarity with each other and and all of those who've been hurt by the actions of the Institutional Catholic Church here in Ireland. And that grew into a massive event on on the Sunday of the Pope's visit at the same time as he was saying the what was meant to be the largest public mass that he was going to say while he was while he was here. So I had to speak an awful lot and I do speak an awful lot. And for the first time in my life, I lost my voice. I had to go on steroids just to keep my voice going over the period that he was here. So when all of that ended, you know, about a week and a half or two weeks after that. So heading into September, really, that's when I really started to crash. And I was just done. Yeah. Not coping very well at all. But I'm not surprised. And most people in Ireland would be extremely familiar with you. But if there's people listening who aren't, you know, Colm not only speaks out, you know, he's mentioned three huge issues here, you know, abuse, clerical abuse. He's speaking about repealing the Eighth Amendment uh, in Ireland, which is for reproductive rights for women in Ireland and marriage equality. But also in your capacity as the executive director of Amnesty, those things alone that you've just mentioned are so stressful in and of themselves. And then I think about the work that you actually do in terms of amnesty, being exposed to and taking in, like I was scrolling through the amnesty page today, and you have these really, they're really stressful human rights stories to even just be aware of. You know, I mean, I know in order to protect myself and I'd be a, a strong advocate for human rights, I have to not read about them. Do you, know, you know, I'll do what I can to help, but to not read. So how do you cope with those kind of things, with, with dealing with that? That's why the level of burnout that I experienced back in 2018 was such a surprise to me, because I'm generally very good at managing it. So I, my background is as a counsellor and psychotherapist. And in my clinical work and in clinical work, you obviously, as you're only two, where you develop really good practice around separating from the work. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really stood to me. You know, I I can remember early on in my clinical practice getting advice from a supervisor who said to me, you you need to use the time that you leave work to truly leave work. So if you're driving home, think through your day, think through the clients that you've seen and, and the work that you've done. And as you think each one of them through, let them go. Literally imagine almost like ribbons flowing out your car window and let it go. So I developed these routines. You know, I would get home from work and I would always change the clothes that I'd worn in work and have a shower and settle back right. into life at home. So I had these rituals yeah. uh, or practices or routines that, that for me were really, really important about separation. So I'm very good at that. And I also know that I need to do it in order to continue to do the work well. So it's a, and a really important part of managing my well-being, which is obviously important, but also managing my capacity to do the work and the job well. 
you have to put in place those kind of practices. So that's generally what I what I try to do. And then, you know, I, I find other things. Like for me, in 2018, I decided that uh, I needed to increase. Uh, I got into exercise quite a lot, having never really exercised yeah. at all in my life up until my early 30s. Got into it quite a bit. And, and, and then in, in 2014, 2015, started to do a lot more. When I had that burnout, that crash uh, towards the end of 2018, we were heading into the winter. You know, I realized I'm very lucky where I live. I live in a beautiful area. I can down the laneway onto a beach that is perfect running kind of area. And I love to run. But once it starts to get dark here, it's hard to get out there at the end of the day. Yeah. So in 2018, I decided I'm going to have to do something fairly significant to really build some very, very solid structure in that I really have to contract with myself or with the process in order to have dedicated time to focus on my well-being. So I just decided to start working with a personal trainer. So that's what I did. All right. I went to see a personal trainer once a week. And that meant that I had to put a practice in that on Tuesdays, I had to finish work by 4.30 in order to get to the session with the trainer. Yeah. I had to do that session. And then he would give me other things that I had to do during the week. And I had this structure. And that was transformative for me. That was that was. And I've stuck with that. I'm not able to obviously go and see a trainer at the moment. Yeah. But I very much stick with that routine still. Just the practice of it. You know, it's it's not even about, obviously, if one can exercise, that has physiological and, and mental health benefits that are physiological. But I also think there's something about the intent, right? It's when you carve out the yeah. space and you say, I am doing this because I need to make this investment in my well-being. I think that actually has a profound impact on, on one's mental health. I think you're you're so right. Just listening to kind of some of those things that you said, I think people can harness them and use them, you know, now, particularly coping with living and working from home. And, and I just keep thinking about I'm very fortunate that I'm in a home that I share with someone that I get on with and we have space and uh, and I, I can't help but think how people are coping who are in challenging relationships and lockdown together all this time. And even it's just even challenging for people working from home. And actually, I think people could probably take a leaf out of your book in that, yes, you were physically driving home from work, but I love the idea that you changed clothes and you had a shower. And I think that there's things like that that people can do to compartmentalize, well, this is where I'm working. And actually, I'm only going to work in this room in the house and that's my workspace and the rest of my house is for leisure. And I'm going to do that thing of, you know, whether it's walking around the block after you finish working to then come home into your house and for it to be your home. I think there are practices that could work immeasurably. But also, yes, you're right, physical exercise just for releasing endorphins are fantastic for that reason. But I think you're right. It's the ritual of valuing yourself mm. and living consciously, which a lot of us don't do. 40% of our behaviours are habits. And then, you know, a lot of the time, aside from that, we're just on autopilot and we do stuff that we just don't even think about. So even just to stop and consciously make decisions um, is hard by its very nature. That's why we have so many habits, because the brain can't live consciously doing everything. Um, it would be just too difficult for it. But I think they're really sort of very interesting tools. And I would imagine then when you ran sort of from the reproductive rights in to the Pope's visit and all those interviews, you were just being pulled in too many directions and perhaps some of your protective rituals fell apart in some way that there just literally wasn't time. Yeah, many of us who were involved in that campaign in particular, and when I say many of us, I don't just mean those of us in Amnesty, but those of us who worked on that issue, on, on the issue of women's access to abortion care in Ireland over that four or five year period, were very burnt out at the end of that campaign. I yeah. mean, it was deeply, deeply challenging. Because the mm -hmm. level of attack, the level of assault, actually, 
on individual and organizational integrity was constant. It was ongoing. Um, and yeah. it, it just wore people out. Now, you know, that was one where, you know, it feels odd to say that on a, on a personal level, because actually I wasn't having to put my own personal life, my own life story, my own dignity on the line. Yeah. And for many of the campaigners in that referendum, you know, the women who spoke out about either their, their own experience or their own concerns, it's one of the awful things about referendums like that is that we ask people to surrender themselves up for public scrutiny. Yeah. And to ask people to grant them their dignity and their rights, which is an obscene yeah. thing to ask people to do. Obscene. And that has a profound impact on people, particularly in an environment where when these issues are being debated, what you actually mean yeah. is people's integrity, their dignity, their humanity and their rights are suddenly put up for debate. And by the way, for those who are the target of the contested rights or whose rights or dignity are being contested, they're meant to simply accept this and be nice about it. Yes, um, and be polite as you engage with that. And that has a huge impact on people. So that had a, a massive impact on, on an awful lot of people. And, and I know now, I mean, even two years on from that campaign, I, I regularly, I made some very, very good friends throughout the process of that campaign as well. And, and I regularly talk to people and people are still recovering from that. People are still I can imagine. trying to yeah. deal with it. You come out because it was almost like a coming out for, you know, because I do remember that in terms of we were saying, can the same storytelling work for repeal the eighth as worked for marriage equality? Because it was kind of different in marriage equality because you were talking in a way about, you know, acknowledging love. And I remember Gavin during marriage equality saying Exactly what you've just said, you know, what what he called sort of that Oliver syndrome, like, you know, please, sir, can I have some more? It's like, please, sir, can I be treated the same as you? And he just felt, I mean, he didn't overtly campaign. He just felt that he wasn't strong enough to do that, I guess, in a sense. And I mean, he was relatively young in that regard. But I could just see he eventually just... I don't know what what point, but he just logged off all social media. He stopped watching any TV programs. He stopped listening to the news because he said, I can't cope with people deciding whether I could be a father or not or comparing me to a paedophile. And I'm supposed to just sit here and let you all debate my entire humanity, integrity. Can you, I mean, I mean, for anyone who hasn't kind of been involved in any of these things, like, you know, imagine somebody accusing you of interfering with your own children. It is the most horrific thing to kind of accuse anybody of. And yet anybody who was campaigning for marriage equality was considered fair game in that regard. And I certainly even found that just knocking at the door because as you know, uh, with Amnesty, I mm. had just that nice little line of I have two sons, you know, one can marry and one can't. And that's inequality. And I naively thought knocking at doors that people would be polite. But I had some of the most horrific things I've ever heard in my life said straight to my face about my son. And that's kind of you're a parent and, and it's very hard to take whatever you can take about yourself when someone does it to your kids is is awful. So I always yeah. felt very much and your kids during marriage equality actually were really very young and, and Safi wrote she she wrote that wonderful letter. Yes, Sophie was fifteen. I can remember, you know, coming home from a really intense day and actually heading down to just work out a little bit to try to switch off, you know, that self care piece. And she was sitting at the kitchen table and she was doing her junior set that year. And she was sitting at the kitchen table writing something. And she said to me, will you read this for me? And I went, oh, okay, can I do it when I come back? Is that okay? Because I thought it was like an assignment or something. Yeah. To check. And, and I went, what is it? And she said, oh, she said, I'm just, I'm so wound up because I've just seen all of those no posters gone up around the place. And I just feel really angry about it. So I had to write something. 
And I didn't realize that what it was. So I had a quick read of it and it was extraordinary. You know, she was just talking about how for the first time in her life, she'd suddenly had people question the integrity of her family. Um, and it was yeah. a really strong, powerful reaction to that. It was a letter. And um, I stupidly tweeted about it before I went out for a run. And when I came back in, there was, I think, three or four different radio stations and producers and shows on saying, would she come on and talk about it? And my first year was, no, she won't, because we'd always kept the kids as far away from media as we can, because, you know, the kind of stuff that I got uh, over the years was bad enough. And and at times it it did come at us as a family. So we always wanted to protect them from it. So I initially said no. And then she said, well, what if I want to do it? Yeah. So she ended up going on a radio show here and talking about it and an overwhelming positive response to it. And that was the thing I was going to say, you know, as much as there was an intense, focused, vitriolic negativity that was projected on people a lot during that campaign. The other reality was that the overwhelming response from people was one of solidarity and love yeah. and support and, and respect and compassion. And now I'm, I'm mixing both of the campaigns because actually I think both of those campaigns, the campaign for marriage equality, the campaign to secure women's reproductive rights here in Ireland and access to abortion care, they were dealing with the same questions. They were really asking us to think about who are we as a people yeah. and how do we want to care for each other? So at moments of joy, of celebration, in in those foundational moments where we come together and build our lives, how do we want to respond to each other? At moments of crisis and tragedy, how do we want to respond to each other? At moments where we're in need, whether it's of support or recognition or care or access to healthcare, how do we want to respond to each other? And, you know, for me, what was really ultimately joyful about all of that was the response that came back from people. And and they said with, with compassion with dignity, with decency, with care and with love. And that was the overwhelming response of Irish people. Now, that's the piece that always kept me very solid in it. I had an awful lot of confidence in the goodness that lies at the heart of humanity. I mean, that's the thing that keeps me doing what I do. Yes, my work over the years and and some of my life's experiences have have shown me the the worst of who we can be as as human beings. But actually, whenever you meet the worst of of humanity, if you just pause a moment and, and wait, you'll meet the best of it in how we respond to that. And for me, that's always been the reality. You know, humanity, it's just grounded in a desire to live in healthy, compassionate, life-affirming, which means loving uh, ways and to express itself in that way. I really believe that that's what cuts through ultimately, you know. And I think the vast majority of people are of that kind. I think just sometimes when you're on social media, it can be very hard to remember that. But I do think the majority of people are very genuine, very kind. Unfortunately, you know, it really always gets me in the media. Oh, we have to have balance. And and you're not having balance at all. What you're doing is, you know, balance would be proportional representation when you give voice to people. But what seems to be perceived as balance in media is to have someone who may be the voice of the majority and then some madcap individual that may be represented represents 0.0001% and give them exactly the same time. That's not balanced. Or, or, even, or even on an issue like reproductive rights on abortion, that they'll say, well, we have to hear from both sides. And, and my immediate question was, well, who are these both sides that you speak of? So on one yeah. side, you have people who say that no woman should ever be able to access abortion care. Nobody. That's the ultimate pro-life position. So the anti-abortion position. And then you have a whole range of other people who have lots and lots of different views, but who generally are pro-choice and who think that women should make their own decisions. And when people talked about the two extremes, there are two extreme positions. If, if one extreme position is no woman should ever be able to access abortion, then the other extreme position is every woman should have to have abortions. And nobody's espousing right. that. There is no other extreme. Yeah. You know, there's nobody out there who's promoting abortion as something that, oh, let's everybody should go and have an abortion. Nobody yeah. is suggesting that. 
And yet the media and actually a lot of the times politics can only deal in these kind of binary propositions where you've got one and you side make, and you make no progress. No. That's what's happened in politics and, and globally. And I feel a little bit scared now the way the world is going, to be perfectly honest, is, you know, there's this bifurcation and you're either with us or against us and it's yes or no. And the world is not like that. And I've said it before, you know, if you look at the language of politics before wars, it's binary, which we're yeah. seeing an awful lot of now. If you look at the language before when the Berlin Wall came down or any of those things, the political language, you see this great, you know, shades of grey and nuance in the language. Obviously, certain political leaders like Trump aren't capable of nuance. They have a really, really limited vocabulary. But I saw something, I don't know if you saw it um, online. I think it's part of the Biden campaign. It's a very, very powerful video. I just saw it online. It's a mother and a daughter in a car and they're just being stopped by the police and asked where they're going. And you can see the daughter is a young teen and she has the head down and there's guys outside with guns and they're questioning the mother. No, no, no. Are are you heading for the border? No, we're not heading for the border. And then they look over at the daughter. Are you pregnant? Get out. And they take them in. But it's it's basically just saying this is the world we're heading towards if you if you vote for Trump. And the really scary part is that's not an extremist proposition anymore, right? Because you no, know, if you look at what's happened in the scary. US, if you look at what's, ha- what's happened in the US over the last, you know, four years in particular, but actually going back about ten years, is there's a gradual desire to erode women's access to to healthcare, to reproductive healthcare, yeah. including. And by the way, I mean broadly to reproductive healthcare, not just to abortion, but to yes. contraception. Yeah, <laughs> you know, to any sort of family planning service. It's back to this notion yeah. of treating women as mere incubators. And we, 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 we yeah. see that again in yeah. Poland just this past week, where the Polish government, as they moved to abolish an independent judiciary, put in place a constitutional tribunal, which is now the highest court in the land. But I mean, it, it can't be seen to be an independent judicial body by any stretch of the imagination. And just this week, they further restricted access to abortion in Poland. Um, yeah, I saw that. At the same time, the protests on foot of what's happening there yes. have been just extraordinary. And there was there was one that I picked up on yesterday, and it was it was of Wanda, who's ninety three years of age. And in nineteen forty four, when she was seventeen, she took part in the Warsaw Uprising to liberate the city from Nazi German forces. It was an uprising that was led by the Polish resistance. And she said this week. We women won't give up, not this time. During the uprising, we fought together, boys and girls, for our human dignity. If we are now being used as incubators, then I'm sorry, but we have a right to fight for our dignity. It's a 93-year-old woman. It's fabulous, yeah, but it's it's scary. So the resistance to all of this is, for me, as inspiring as the pressure to regress and to push back on rights uh, is genuinely very, very worrying, and it is very worrying. Yeah, no, I do. I do. It was literally like a scene from the from the Handmaid's Tale. And and I mean, you know, who would have thought that 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 I mean, I remember kind of watching it when it came out first and kind of thinking, gosh, you know, we really could go there. But I didn't realize how fast we could start going there. You know, it's incredibly scary stuff. And I just don't understand. Are they why these people are so fearful of women that they just want to put us down. And then it's not just women, of course, then the same things are happening. We're, re- you know, going backwards with gay rights and, and all those issues. It scares the living daylights out of and me. And yet at the same um, time, I mean, you know, that's a, that's why at times I just feel very lucky to be doing the job that I do here in Ireland, because at a time when the rest of the world seems to be moving in a kind of a regressive direction, Ireland yeah. has moved in, in the opposite direction. So on things like LGBT rights, on women's rights, 
on refugee and migration issues. Things are far from perfect here, but Ireland is oh, moving yeah. in, a, in, an, in a very different direction to the direction that much of the world appears to be moving. Now, there's encouraging signs, right? So we've seen, you know, a collapse in support for far-right parties across Europe over the last year. That's really welcome. And we're seeing a big rise in, not just in in, in opposition to them, but really importantly, in people manifesting their opposition to them. Because the real danger that those kinds of authoritarian forces can really ascend and seize power is if people don't resist. If people just think, well... You know, that really can't happen here. You know, this is Ireland or this is the UK or this is America or this is Europe. That won't happen here. If we don't stand for something and if we don't defend the rights that we worked so hard to secure and to enshrine in law, they can and will be taken away. And, And it's why vigilance really matters. And it's why points of principle really, really matter. And I think the most encouraging thing that we've seen over the last couple of years is just the, the rise of the number of people who are becoming active and engaged and speaking out against uh, those kind of authoritarian regimes right across the world. So, you know, yeah, well, see. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I think, to be honest, I suppose what's happened in the last four years has probably scared people. You know, when you see when you do look over to the US and you see things happening and science not meaning anything. In fact, you know, like for me, it's like (laughs) when it started, it was kind of like, no, hold on. You know, the ground from underneath me is being moved because everything that makes sense no longer. Yeah. And I mean, on one hand, you don't want to scare people. And at the same time, people should be gravely, gravely concerned. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, no, and I think they uh, are. The, one thing, I, you the know. only thing I don't want people to, be, to do is to be paralyzed by fear and then to feel hopeless and to give up, because that's the other thing, right? People often feel, well, there's nothing I can do about that. And that can be a combination mm. of feeling powerless and hopeless, but also it can be a mechanism through which people abdicate their own power, because if they were to recognize it, they'd have to act, right? And, and they're yeah. frightened of acting, or they don't feel that yeah. they can or should. So the last thing we want for people to do is, is, is feel powerless because actually the simple reality is, and if you look across human history, the only time when power is actually held to account is when there's a popular demand that it will be. Power yes. systems never change of their own accord. They are changed by a popular demand that becomes irresistible and that forces them to ultimately change. And that's why individual action and, and the action of ordinary people, it's the only thing that ever changed anything. And frankly, it's the only thing that ever will. And I think people don't realise how much power they actually have because each of us, like we're just one person, you might think you can do nothing, but what you can do if everybody says, well, I'm going to do something, then we have huge power. So it's don't wait. It's just each of us. I think I think great things happen when lots of people do little things. Yeah. And I think that's the way I look at it is you don't have to aim to be doing the great thing. You just be the person who's doing the little thing. And the sum of that is what becomes the great yeah. thing. You spoke there just about fear and powerlessness. And, and um, if you don't mind, I remember reading in your book, which is going back a good while since you wrote it. Beyond Belief, which is your own story of abuse by a priest in Ireland. And I remember reading it at the time and it's it's a tough read, but it's a beautifully written book about a really, really tough time in your life and a really tough story. And just when you say that about feeling powerless and alone, I think that's what struck me most in your story, that little boy that was that was subjected to this horrific abuse, unknowingly, you know, your parents were 
sort of a part of it, unknowing to them. But also, I mean, it was the one thing that really struck out of me. And I think it speaks to what we're just saying there, that individuals can make a difference, was that when you went back and spoke to people, people said, well, we knew, but we were just glad it wasn't our child. And I thought that was almost as bad as what had happened. Yeah, I mean, that, that particular that particular story that you're referencing there, it was it was because... So I, I took the case against the church and I went back and reported the abuse in, in early 1995, February of 1995, thinking that I was going back to report what one bad man who happened to be a priest had done to me. But within about six weeks, I discovered that, you know, the, the police had started their investigation and almost as soon as they began to ask any kinds of questions at all, another five men came forward who were boys the age I was when the same priest abused them. Within six months, I became aware of information that suggested the church had received complaints about this guy when he was still training to be a priest, but had ordained him a priest anyway. Within 18 months, I had evidence to suggest that complaints had gone as far as the Vatican and that the Holy See, which is one of the names of the office of the Pope, so that Pope John Paul II was made aware of, of these concerns and that nothing was done. And that's why in, in 1998, I, I decided to take a legal action against the, the diocese, but also against the Pope. So that's why I sued the Pope. And, you know, now looking back on it, kind of what, 22 years later, yeah, I can acknowledge that that sounds like a rather extreme and rather grandiose thing to do. But at the time, it was just an obvious thing. So at every stage yeah. of that process, you know, okay, so another five people have come forward. It's not just me. There's something more happening here. We have to find out about that. Okay, so the church knew, well, who's going to investigate that? And it turns out that nobody was going to investigate that. Because what the state does, it will, it will investigate and prosecute individual cases if it finds enough evidence to prosecute them. But it's, it wasn't interested at all in looking at the systemic thing. Because the one thing that the Irish state and the Irish establishment system, I kind of hate those phrases, but they are actually, they mean something, so it's important to use yeah. them, were not prepared to do was to look at the corruption that existed at the heart of our society, which was dominated by the, the institution of the Catholic Church, which controlled the state and all organs of the state. And you had these appalling crimes happening with, with absolute impunity, and I believed with the full knowledge of the state, and it, it became clear over time that that was the case as we forced various investigations into all of that. But I mean, at each stage of it, it just seemed to me that a question had to be asked and nobody seemed prepared to ask the questions. And the only mechanism that was available was to then take legal action. So that's that's why I did it. Um, mm. We also, um, are, I was able to secure the first ever full stage investigation into abuse in Catholic diocese here in Ireland. It was called the Ferns Inquiry. And that published its report in, in 2005. And on the day that the report was published, Rosa Parks died. And I can remember, it was just happened to be the same day or around the same day. And I can remember, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but she said something once that, that knowing what must be done does away with fear. You know, when you know, right. when it's really clear to you what you need to do next, then that completely does away with fear. You know, people would have said to me over the years, what, what you did was incredibly brave there. And I kind of gone, I don't understand what you mean by that, because it was just the obvious thing to do. And I never felt frightened. It was just the obvious thing that needs to be done and should be done and was the obvious thing to do. So why would you be frightened of doing what's obviously required and necessary and right? You just get on and do it. So I genuinely never felt frightened. Okay, but 
And I, I think what you say is very valid. I often say to people, if people are anxious and worried and, you know, about anything, um, you know, anxiety, and you'll know this, you know, you can look at it as a loss of control. You know, you don't have control over what might happen in the future or so, something happening and, and you're worried about someone and you've no control over what might happen to them. And so the best way to kind of allay those fears and address them is to look at what you can control and what you can't control. And if you can't control something, you just have to accept it. And if you can, you just have to figure out what it is you have to do to control it and just get on with it. And it's very practical and pragmatic and it's very freeing and it does get rid of fears in that way. But what I'm actually kind of interested in, obviously in the book, you do go into this, but just for listeners for, you know, I think what people might find your journey has been amazing from that uh, very, very challenging start in life, which then actually really affected the trajectory of your life then as a teenager and, and mm. moving on, because um, you were very much alone going through this whole issue. Yeah, I mean, at, at, at 17, uh, you know, I was finishing school. This had then been going on for three years. I was desperate to escape what was happening but more than that, desperate to escape my own despair in it all. And it was either check out a life or get away from where I lived. So it was either the river or the road. And thankfully, I took the road. So I packed a suitcase and hitched to Dublin. And I spent about the first six to eight months, maybe nine months, street homeless in Dublin. Yes. Um, and then managed to, to get myself back on my feet and found community, found the, the gay community in Dublin, found the youth group in the National Gay Federation in Dublin, which saved my life, that space where I found acceptance and safety for the first time in my life and an opportunity to begin to understand something of who I was and who I might be in the world. And then really over the next 10 years or so, it, it was about finding a way back to some part of myself. So by kind of 1996, 97, I'd started to stop running away from all of that. And when you stop right. running, it begins to catch up a little bit. You know, I began to think about the stuff that I needed to deal with. And that was how I thought about it, the stuff that I needed to deal with. And that's what brought me back. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So when you say running away from it, was it that you... I mean, obviously you were physically running away from it in, in, in mm. one regard, but I mean, when something like that happens, you know, it's one of those things that constantly comes into any space you leave in your head, you know. But you carry it with you, right? So, so yeah. I mean, we're talking about really deep trauma here, both psychological yes. and physical trauma. Like I was repeatedly raped as, yeah. a, as a teenage boy and there was no way for me to escape that. And my rapist would come and take me from my parents and put me in his car and bring me away with them whenever he wanted. 
Yeah. You know, and he was able to manipulate my parents into making me go with him when I cried and yeah. said I didn't want to go. Um, yeah. So there was so many levels and layers of trauma. And then add into that my own, um, you know, all the way through that time, I had never had an opportunity to understand my sexuality or who I was in the world. Mm. You know, I had no no positive role models for me in terms of my sexuality. You know, the word gay wasn't used. You know, we yeah. didn't see those kind of representations of LGBT people in the world and the only thing that I could relate my sexuality to was were the sexual assaults. Yeah. Um, worse yet, the way at times that I responded to those sexual assaults. So the levels of trauma and shame and despair and self-loathing and self-hatred that I carried, I carried really deep inside myself for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. And, and, you know, so in part, that's what I was running away from and and with and trying to protect myself from and it was only in my very in my late 20s that I began to even look sideways at that and going back and reporting what had happened was only the first step in that and that was a very practical almost intellectual process but then I had to start to try and get to grips with or uncover the impact of that. And that took much, much longer. That took a very long time indeed. And I mean, you know, as you said, this was very, very severe trauma. Also, mm. given your age, you grew up in a time when mm. it was a criminal offence to engage in homosexual activity. So that would have been challenging enough on its own. And then, as you said, all those horrible mixed up things um, with abuse and with your own budding sexuality and not understanding and not going and the running away. One, somebody once said to me, the problem with running away as a coping mechanism is that you always have to bring yourself with you. <laughs> but you know what? I, I love our coping mechanisms, right? And I mean, one of the things that, that I, I always felt was terribly important when I was working clinically was to respect people's coping mechanisms, even when mm. they ultimately began to prove to be destructive. You know, yeah. so too often we're inclined to judge people and to judge their coping mechanisms. So, for example, you know, if somebody is self-harming as a way of dealing with trauma, right? And very often, and I'm really reducing this down in a very simplistic way, yeah. but you'll be aware of this as well, of course. Very often what people are doing is they're finding a way to make sense of intense anguish by creating yeah. some level of physical injury, because at least then there's a letting of something. There's a relief. Something yeah. makes sense, right? And it's Not letting is something that makes perfect absolutely. sense to me. And it's it's how they stay on the planet, because if they did not, they could not stay alive. Yeah. So, of course, that's a, a pattern of coping behavior that in and of itself can become quite destructive and isn't ultimately the healthiest way to deal with what you need to deal with. But there's no point in judging the behavior and saying, you must now never do that again. And I would have seen too often over the years no. saying to people, I won't work with you while you're self-harming. And it's kind of going, OK, so now you're going to abandon them. You've got to help me not right. self-harm. That's why well, I'm whereas, here. <laughs> whereas, you know, I'm inclined to say I, I really respect everything that you've done to cope and to stay alive and to stay connected to yourself. And I see that this behavior, which you know is troubling, right, and is ultimately destructive and unhelpful, but I value what you're trying to achieve. Now, let's see if we can find a better way to achieve that. And please don't yeah. hide this. We can talk about this. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to blame you. We can talk about this. You know, similarly, you know, for people with, with, with addiction issues and with dual, dual diagnosis around addiction issues, I mean, the number of times I would see clinicians say to people with, with multiple trauma issues, with, with then mental health and, and, and addiction issues, we won't work with you while you're actively uh, in addiction. 
And it's kind of going, but they're actively in addiction as a way of staying alive. So you need to work with them in order to bring them safely out of addiction to a space where they feel that they might be able to confront the thing that they're anesthetizing through their addiction. Yeah. So in my experience, both my personal and for a long time, even though it's it's now, gosh, it's 17 years since I've worked clinically. But in all of my time in clinical practice, the, the one thing that I saw was that if we create the conditions for healing, healing isn't just possible, it's inevitable. Because that's what life does. And psychological trauma to me is very much like physical trauma. You know, you may end up with scars, but actually if you, if you keep a wound clean and sterile and tend it and take care of it, it will heal because that's what life does. Life seeks to heal itself. If we provide the conditions within which psychological trauma can reveal itself, can manifest, can get the care and attention that it needs, healing isn't just possible, it's inevitable. Yeah, I I mean, I agree with you because obviously I'm a psychologist, but I'm a neuroscientist and I kind of really feel very passionately that if people understood more how their brains actually work, it actually really is a very, very helpful tool, particularly in dealing with you know, psychological trauma, because usually a lot of that is about the ways you think. And also, if you've had trauma earlier on, your stress response is not going to be within the normal range. You you know, you'll stress out earlier or sooner or or, or more chronic, or you'll respond in an inappropriate or disproportionate way, because that's what your your body and your system and your brain has learned to do. And I think if we can work with people, rather than I, I find sometimes some of the language around therapy can be quite vague and abstract. Yes. And I, I think if you actually say to people, look, this is your organ. Here's how your thoughts work. Here's how a habit is working. You've got this trigger. You have this ritual routine. You have a reward. They get so embedded then that you have this craving. Now, how do we disrupt that? See, for me, I would, I would come at that in what I think is a very similar way, but through a different, from lens. a slightly different approach, right? Through a different lens, yeah. And my approach would be saying, so here's what's being triggered for you. Right. And the important piece is to understand this is what's happening. So you're now having a significant, what might seem disproportionate response to a stimulus. It, however, isn't if you allow yourself to recognize that what's being triggered is your trauma response or your fear response. So first of all, recognize what's happening. Don't judge yourself. Don't be frightened by the response. Just go, oh, that's the thing that's happening. So what do I need to do for myself here now? I need to recognize that I'm okay, that I'm safe that I'm not in that place. And if I don't feel safe, I need to remove myself to a place where I can. And above all, I need not to judge myself or pathologize myself or see myself as weird or wrong. That all of these things are actually normal responses to very abnormal circumstances. So in the same way as you're coming at it from neuroscientists and seeing seeing the, the mechanics almost of neuroscience, what I'm seeing is almost the mechanics of emotional and psychological responses. And I think that... Yeah, and within, what I would see yeah. there is, you see, when you're talking about the emotional responses and the, and the fear, and I'm saying, well, your amygdala is hyper-responding. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. unthinking. And so yeah. what you've got to do is, and actually, when you get in that state, your amygdala grows and it actually gets yeah. bigger and, and neuroplasticity yeah. is enhanced. And actually what happens is this thinking part of your brain, the frontal part, neuroplasticity is shut down. Yeah. And what you actually need is to work very 
very slowly at trying to re-engage this because when you re-engage this, you can start to dampen yeah. this one down. And so we're doing the exact same thing, just using different language. And I do find that when I, you know, when I talk to people or give talks and I say those things for some people, you know, because different things work for different people. But some people, they kind of go just making it concrete in a sense that this is actually physiologically happening in your brain. Wouldn't it be great if we wrap those two things together and we said, here's what's oh, happening yeah, that, at, yeah. at, a, at, a, at the level of, of neuroscience, right? When we talk about the physiology of the yeah. brain, here's what's happening. And that is also a manifestation of your psychological and emotional responses to this Absolutely. particular stimulus, which is grounded in your lived experience. Now, all of those things are happening. And as soon as you begin to understand that that's what's happening, you begin to be able to manage and control it, right? In a yeah, different yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, that's the piece. That's what me. I try to do. I actually yeah. try to kind of blend those because I have the mm-hmm. psychologist and I have mm-hmm. the brain. And just for me, I like to, you know, and, and everybody is different. Some people couldn't care less what's going on inside their brain. Just tell me what I need to do yeah. and that's fine. Yeah. But I've always been that person that, no, I need to know why is that happening and how? And oh, now I believe you because that kind of makes sense. And I, and, and I kind of think it works that way. I think one of the interesting things when you were talking about earlier about taking the case and, you know, control, and it just seemed like the ordinary thing to do the, the, the right thing, thing to, do, to do, the, the obvious the right thing, thing to do, to do. the, the thing obvious thing, that's the word. So what I would imagine is the biggest and hardest step, and tell me if I'm wrong in this, is telling the story. Is oh that- gosh, well I mean the, the, the reason why that's so hard is because actually when trauma has been internalised to such a degree, it's very hard to, to speak the truth of it, because as soon as you speak the truth of it, you're revealing it. Remember, you've, you've spent decades working to hide it because it's simply not safe to say it. So to begin to speak about it with absolute congruence is terrifying because you're going to die Mm. or you're going to kill somebody. I spent most of my life thinking if my father knows what I've done, it'll kill him. It'll kill him. If, If people see how awful, unspeakably, disgustingly evil and corrupt I am, that's death. Like, this is a death. Yeah. So I was absolutely terrified. So I held all of that in. And that meant that, you know, I can remember making my police statement and I'd read back the police statement and it was an intellectual, like saying, for instance, I was sexually abused by a Roman Catholic priest or he did this and this is, these are the, describing the physical reality of what happened. It was a purely intellectual process. I was expressing this from the neck up and the face out. I was in no way connecting with the truth of what it meant to me as a, as a person. And it took me a very, very long time to do that. And I can remember, actually, it was it was really ultimately when I was in training as a therapist. And luckily, thankfully, I found trainers and, and people to work with who really confronted me on this, where I can remember being in a conversation and again talking about what had happened. And the senior clinician on, on the course turned around to me and said, Colin, she said, you know, I can hear what you're saying, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. I hear the words that you're saying, but I have no idea what you're talking about. And that broke me completely. I collapsed right. when she said it to me. Because, you know, I had learned how to repeat these things mantra-like, but not to tell the truth of what they were. And the one thing that I would never speak about was my own shame. Yeah. You know, people would tell me, you know, none of this is your fault. And I would go, yeah, no, I know none of this is my fault. And intellectually, by the way, I knew that was true. So I knew that if a child is raped or sexually assaulted, it is not that child's fault. That child. Not this child, but it's not that child's fault. And then add to that the fact that these good people who were here to help me were telling me what I needed to think and say. And I had learned early on to give people what they wanted from me um, because that's the way to be safe in the world. So these good people are telling me that it's not my fault, so I can't say they're wrong. Plus, I'm not going to go to them. So I just wouldn't do it. 
And, and then ultimately I, I realized that, that the truth was, I know it's not my fault. I have no reason to feel ashamed. I did not do anything wrong, but I feel, feel. like I'm drowning in shame. I feel like I am sick and perverse and evil. I feel I am the things that were done to me and that I am alone and responsible for them. I'm drowning in shame. I know it's not my fault, but I feel and that everything is actually. And to begin to allow that out, of course, as soon as you let it all out there, you see all of it and you get to the truth of it, which is, I know it's not my fault. And you get to reach out to that part of yourself. And this is where, you know, it sounds so bloody therapy speak now that it becomes a little bit daft. But you really do get to reach out to that part of yourself and kind of go, you know, it's it's okay that you felt it was your fault, but it wasn't. And over time, you, you come to know it, you know. So from everything, before you even said the word shame, I was actually kind of going to come in and and, and sort of say what comes out to me is the shame thing. And, you know, I must look into it because for anything, aside from abuse, we feel like we're at the center of our world and we feel the things that happen around us are doing. That's that's the nature of development. We're the ultimate solipsists. We exist in the world and the world only exists around us and nothing happens that isn't related to us, right? No, so that's why kids think that their parents have divorced. It's because of me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? I've done something wrong. But then yeah. add to that a few other pieces, right? And and I, I wrote about this quite a bit in the book, which, by the way, is meant to be as much about hope and recovery and possibility as it is about, and much more about that than it is about trauma. But I, I remember saying at the time that kids and victims of these crimes don't take on that shame because they're stupid, or because they've been simply manipulated. That's part of it as being manipulated, right? But actually, there are so many social drivers that require or point the child in that direction. So, for example, you know, I write in the book about how my mother, you know, when you're a kid and you're growing up, if there's something wrong with you, if you have a sick stomach and you haven't said anything, or if you're slightly off, or, you know, your mum knows that you're not well before you even know it yourself, really. She can see that there's something wrong with you. And you know that now as a parent, and and so do I. You know when there's something off with your child. And they certainly know when you've done something that you're not meant to have done (laughs) somehow. (laughs) And yeah, you also recognize that as a parent, that you can just see the tell signs for the fact that just a little bit. And yet this unspeakable thing happens. This unimaginable thing happens. And nobody says anything. Nobody sees it. And actually what that means is not that they haven't seen it, it's that they've looked away. And this is really tough, by the way, for parents, I think, right? But it's true. It's like it's so unthinkable for the parent that they can't imagine that anything's... And I'm not saying that they specifically see a child and think, okay, that child is seriously being traumatized and obviously there's something very, very wrong. But parents are genuinely predisposed to not imagine that terrible things might have happened to their child. So I bedwet, for example, like way into my teens, way, way into my teens, and at one point, I was sent to a children's hospital in Dublin at the age of, because I'd been abused when I was a younger child as well by some neighbours in the village that I grew up in. And I was sent to a hospital in Dublin for three weeks to be monitored for bedwetting up there. I mean, it was that extreme. And nobody ever asked, could there be anything else going on? Nobody. Yeah. So for me as a child, the experience was that, you know, looking back as an adult, there were all of these tales, so many tales. Mm. Again, I've never worked with or met a victim of child sexual abuse or child abuse who did not in some way speak of their abuse. And more often than not, children don't speak of it verbally. They speak through so many other tales. And the experience for many, many children in in those is, is that those things are not 
acknowledged are seen and that means that they're ignored and that's another message to you as a child that this one is on you this is on you yeah and it's a it's a betrayal and whether unintentional or otherwise and i i often wonder i know of some issues that i'm not at liberty to talk around here but you know i'm a little bit older than you and i i do wonder whether there's a generational thing i mean i certainly know of an issue where there was abuse happened in a family, you know, we'll say by an uncle, um, the child's father learned about it because the child actually was very young and said what had happened. Do you know, it was just one of those things. And it had occurred when they were being babysat and there was another child outside the room and the girl was screaming inside. And I think actually the little boy outside said, you know, and it came about. And the father, it was the mother's brother-in-law who had done it. And the father said, that's it. I don't want you seeing your sister again. I don't want you anything to do with them. This is appalling. And the mother's parents actually pointed the finger at the mother of the child who was abused and said, this is ridiculous. That's your sister. You should not be not, you know. And I think for six weeks or something, she was ostracized. And then she said, no, I need my family. I have to be with my mom and with my sister. And so then everybody and the entire family were again, let be in that space. And then another child was interfered with. And to me now, that just seems like, how, how? And when it was brought up in later life, basically what was said was, oh, don't bring that nonsense up again. <laughs> you know, and I think it's a, I can't see that happening now. But don't, well, you'd be surprised Does actually. It? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it still happens now because families want to, uh, yeah, I'm thinking of people I know right now who as adults are finally confronting some of the things that happened for them. And that is generally the response from within the family system. Don't, we don't need to deal with that. No. Don't bring that up now. It's no. too, it's too distressing. It's too unsettling. And I mean, and the one who know, does where, bring it up is in the wrong. Yeah. But I mean, that's where I think we have to begin to have a much, much more mature objective approach to understanding the dynamics of sexual violence, particularly sexual violence against children and thinking about the strategies that we need to employ to respond to it. So, for instance, one in four, the organization that I established in London first in 1999, and then it's why I came back to Ireland in 2003 to set up the national arm of that organization here in Ireland. And one in four refers to? The number of people who will experience sexual violence as children. It's about about 27% or 25%, depending on the country that you're in. Um, We started very on doing perpetrator assessment and treatment programs because there were very few interventions available around perpetration or or, or possible perpetration of sexual violence against children, but particularly because that was a critical intervention from a family support perspective. So, you know, very often we would have people coming to us who would disclose abuse within the family system and the family needed support to be able to deal with that. So you needed to work with the entire family. But you also had to be able to work with the perpetrator on some level. So we set up a, a parallel program run in a different space where we started doing the perpetrator assessment and treatment programs. And and that program is still very much up and running at one in four, and it's really important work. And in no way does that say or excuse or soft soap the the nature of the crimes perpetrated by the perpetrator. But it absolutely does say if we're serious about addressing this, we have to respond to, first and foremost, you know, your triage, you respond to the needs of the victim. So what's happening right now? What, What do we need to do to make people safe? What do we need to do to give immediate care to those who've been directly impacted by this abuse? And then you're looking at the circles of impact around all of that. What can we do to support this family now 
in working through the trauma within this family. And as part of that, very often, particularly when it's abuse within families, you really have to begin to look at how is this family now going to address and deal with a relationship with a perpetrator? Because, you know, when abuse happens within families, this is even more complex because very often the victim loves the perpetrator. If the perpetrator is a sibling or a parent or a loved family member, that's real. So all of that needs to be unpicked and understood. And and to this day, you know, we're not really sophisticated enough in our understanding of the complexity of the relationship dynamics that exists within families where abuse, particularly abuse of children, has manifest. And dealing with that does not mean being soft on perpetration. It means being rigorous and fearless and ferocious in providing love and support and compassion to the victims of abuse within that family, to the wider victims within that family, those impacted by the abuse who weren't themselves abused, and then absolutely being prepared to deal with the the perpetrator as well to help to support this family in moving forward in some way. I've I've always said that, and and it's very rocky territory. Like when I studied at university, I did some work around human sexuality and trying to understand paedophilia. And when you even say that, trying to understand paedophilia, p- people are up in arms straight away as if somehow you're trying to, to make it okay. But I think if you want to change something, the first step is you have to understand why it's happening or what is it that leads to it happening. And I think just pointing fingers and locking people away is may be, you know, the band-aid for that particular situation. And actually, it, you know, as you said, it's more complex than that because, you know, when it's a family involved, etc., there can be all sorts of issues. But also, you know, perpetrator treatment is an essential trial protection intervention. Yes. You know, yes, absolutely. And by the way, to be really, really clear, my own view and my own position is that these crimes should always be reported, that parallel to the process around Uh, recovery and healing and psychological and psychotherapeutic responses and supports that need to be put in place for the victims and for the family system. There also needs to be an appropriate criminal justice uh, intervention. That should happen. And the family need to be supported through that process. But you also have to be mindful of the fact that at some point, it's likely, could be years away, but at some point, that perpetrator will be out in the world again. Now, what are we doing to minimize the risk that that person will pose. And we know, by the way, the treatment always reduces risk. You can't eliminate risk, Mm. but treatment minimizes risk. So we have to develop interventions that can offer good support services and good psychological maintenance processes to perpetrators as well as an essential trial protection measure. Now, that's really tough because it also means on some level, if you're going to do that work, you have to engage with the humanity of the perpetrator. You're going to have to be prepared to step beyond your understanding of that person as simply as demonic, uh, you know, as as monstrous. You've got to to understand what happened that brought, because I, with any health issue, prevention is better than treatment or cure. So the only way we can prevent these things happening is actually, you know, it's science. You have individuals that you can study. And if you can trace back and try and figure out, is there commonalities? Where can we intervene to prevent this happening in the future? And as you said, you do have to see a human being that became this person in order for us to prevent that 
trajectory. Who, who has manifested this behaviour and how do we now make sure when that person returns to society that they're less likely to do this? And, yeah, and, and yeah. But we also know, and all of the research tells us, that if you don't put in place good maintenance and support systems and, and supervision systems for paedophiles once they've returned to society following a, a prison sentence or whatever, they're much more likely to live in chaos. And if they're living chaotic lives, that the yes. risk of perpetration increases exponentially. So putting in place good support systems is a child protection intervention first yeah, and foremost. And people need to understand I would agree that. totally. And I mean, none of that, by the way, to be really clear, to be really clear, and I hope I don't need to say it, but to be really clear, the crime is abhorrent. And the person is absolutely accountable for their crime. Yes. And first and foremost, we have to focus on the needs of the victims of that crime. Uh, both the direct victims and those who are impacted by it. And then we have to think about how do we protect people in the future from perpetration. And that means working with the perpetrator. You had, there is no other way to do it. And it doesn't mean that you condone in any way, shape or form, but it has to be done. And I don't think we're doing enough of that. Just to say really quickly, by the way, when you, when you say that you in no way condone, the reality is that effective perpetrator treatment means absolutely unambiguously confronting the perpetration and trying to get to a point where the perpetrator is prepared to fully acknowledge not just what they've done, but to be open to understanding the impact of what they've done. And that's very challenging. I did spend some time as well working in an offender treatment program when I was in practice in the UK too. And I remember, you know, not long into that work thinking, my God, I'll never have to sit in that chair. What must that be like? Right. To have to sit there and own that behavior and own the impact of that behavior, the harm caused. And yet, if we can't get perpetrators to do that, then you're never going to develop a level of empathy or understanding of the impact of what they've done that will allow them to make different decisions. I mean, it's a very confronting, not at all. It's not about forgiveness. It's not about tenderness mm-hmm. or compassion. It's about a very strong confrontation of the offending behavior and demanding that the person respond to that with honesty and congruence, but allows their humanity to emerge in a way that allows them to confront it, which is a huge thing. The thing that comes to me when you see about these people that done these things and I kind of go, what must their mother be feeling? (laughs) You know, because I would kind of imagine, you know, imagine that. What must it be like that you've produced somebody who has gone on to do that? Just why we've been talking about shame. I'm going to go and, and read up on this and try and figure out. I wonder, is it some sort of, because I believe that most of our behaviors have evolved because they serve a purpose. You know, as you delve into anything, anger serves a purpose. We as humanity have decided that some behaviors are bad and some are good. And I prefer to see, well, hold on, what function does that behavior serve? And and it has evolved because it serves a purpose. So there must be something that it is doing that helps us. And I just wonder, is that sense of shame actually protecting children from being almost excommunicated or isolated from their family or their unit? Because if they actually... Yeah, I don't think it's designed to protect children at all. I think it's designed to protect the system. So I think I don't think design is the right word. But well, it, yeah, it's, it's evolved, right? So, so I think it's, yeah. its focus is less on protecting children. It's much more on protecting societal systems or societal norms. So, yeah. so I think shame is a social construct. I don't think it's a natural human response to anything. I think it's a social construct. I have no reason, by the way, to believe that. It's just my own I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into it, but what you say makes sense in some regard. We, we're taught to be shameful. That makes much more sense. Because it's a form of social control. So we use shame 
to prevent or to limit, either to limit certain behaviours or to limit even the acknowledgement of that behaviour because we don't want to confront it. Yeah, no, what you're saying makes sense. So we know that the things that shame is attached to most are generally actually around areas of people's sexual or reproductive lives. So that's where most shame is projected. If you look at all of the shame that's projected onto women, by the way, it's usually around issues that have to do with reproductivity or sexuality. Similarly, you know, around around child sexual abuse, it's around the same kind of stuff. So it's we don't want to look at that aspect of our humanity. So we're going to make people feel shamed. So they either will control their impulses or they will, if they don't control them, they're not going to talk about them and we can all pretend that none of this is happening. It's an extreme form of social control. And I mean, for me, a really good example of that that's very alive at the moment, and I want to write about this because I feel so strongly about it. We're going through a debate here in Ireland at the moment around access to records in institutions where unmarried women had children, mother and baby homes, they were called. There's a big report of five-year investigation that's looked into these appalling institutions Things like forced adoptions, children were removed from mothers, people were held, forced labour, all kinds of stuff. But there's a massive debate happening around whether or not people who were born in those institutions and adopted out of those institutions, very often illegally, can have access to information around their parentage and where they come from. And there's this constant conversation around the right to privacy of birth parents, which on one level, intellectually, I understand. But if you unpick that a little bit, I remember having a conversation a couple of years back on this with a senior political figure who said to me, but you know, the letters, the anguish letters we get from women who are terrified of a knock on the door at any point from that child or whether they'll be forced you know, to acknowledge what had happened. And therefore, we have to consider that. And, and what I want to say in all of that is, no, what you really have to consider is why is an 80 or 90 or at times even 100 year old woman carrying such shame that she lives in terror of a knock on the door? You yes. need to deal with the trauma that she continues to carry, which manifests in her fear of somebody knocking on the door because she didn't do anything wrong. Yes. She got pregnant and had a child. That's all she did. She did nothing wrong. And she, for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, has carried this shame and is still carrying it. And rather than confront that and say, by the way, you did nothing wrong, you're now saying we need to protect her from her shame. It's yeah, not hers, yeah. it's ours, and we projected her on it. Let's have that yeah, conversation. Yeah. Let's have yeah, that yeah. conversation, please. I did some work for the Irish government in terms of, um, they do a lot of support to support the Irish diaspora. And in the mm. UK, a lot of Irish, you know, who, who emigrated over there, many of them because of their sexual orientation, yeah. and a lot of them also because they'd had children or babies and, and whatever. And, and a lot straight out of industrial schools and reformatories and orphanages directly. All yeah. those things. And they said the level of stress that goes through those communities every... So I'm just imagining now, they said every time there's a report, they have this whole community that are are, are going through this terrible trauma. And as, a, as you said, if we could just actually just put that out in the open and, you know, sort of say that it's OK. Mm-hmm. But what you said about the shame, you're absolutely on the money because I'm just thinking, you look at any baby or child, they are completely disinhibited. They just behave. Yeah. Shame. Shameless, wonderfully, beautifully. Yeah, yeah, wonderfully, beautifully, right? So the behaviours after that are learned and we learn to inhibit and that's our frontal lobes. And it's a very active response and you learn what you've to inhibit. And that's how we learn. You can curse with your friends, and but you must talk this way in front of your mom and it's okay to take your clothes off here and not there. So I think you're absolutely on the money that it is a learned behaviour that we are 
shamed as a child, the way you're spoken to by your parents and, and that line, I'm terribly disappointed in you or don't let me ever see you do that again. That kind of language produces a response that obviously is both in our emotional brain and our thinking brain. So the emotional brain being where the limbic system is, because the thing is, when you feel shame, you feel it. You know, there's a gut response in it, you know, very similar to a release that's released with stress and anxiety. You know, there's definitely sort of adrenaline kind of, you know, in your stomach and sickening feelings. And that's hormones being released. But obviously you're overriding that with this part of the brain because you've learned that actually, if you come out and say it, there will be consequences and consequences that are more fearful in some way. Yeah. And it's learned so young. And that's like when I, you know, when I talk about habits and if you want to change habits, they're so embedded and it was learned so young that you're just not even aware of it or how it happened. But then take that out of even just the individual, right? And and think about shame as a, a mechanism of social control and the impact Absolutely. of shame, shame at a societal level, right? Because yeah. I'm delighted that you that you immediately moved to talking about fear. So shame manifests and then it's like yeah. keeping it quiet and keeping it hidden because if it becomes revealed, then that's very fearful. So you're clear that there will be consequences and those consequences may be disapproval or withdrawal of love, all of those withdrawal of respect from people that you love, right? But in the Irish context, at a societal level, the threat was much more extreme than that. Yes. You could lose your liberty. Yeah. If you are one of those women or one of those queer, perverse men, or one of those unacceptable others, you will lose your liberty and your life. You will be locked up yeah. behind a high wall for the rest of your life. And your family will be shamed, and they will lose privilege and position, and poverty may beckon, and social ostracization may beckon. Like, that was the level of control that existed yeah. at a societal level in this country for many, many generations. And we're talking until relatively recently. Remember, the last Magdala Laundry closed in Ireland in 1996. I right? know, it's until, incredible, and, and we, isn't it? We, we only removed the Eighth Amendment from the Irish Constitution that said that women could only be allowed to terminate a pregnancy if they were at imminent risk of death. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we only did that two years ago. So, yeah. you know, those levels of shame and control that existed at the level of society were extreme. And the threat of non-conformity was extreme. We're not stupid. We are a country that has been incredibly brutalized and we became socially very brutal in response. And all of the time we pretended that we weren't. We were good, holy Catholic Ireland where nothing bad ever happened. And anybody whose life unfortunately meant that they might manifest something that was contrary to that view that was demanded of us, then your life was over. You and yeah. your family, it's a death. You're going to be destroyed. It was terrifying. So like the shame, the control of shame is just extraordinary. We talk about Irish guilt, which is a, you know, first cousin to shame as well. But it's just as well, you know, all pervasive. Do you know? I mean, I remember growing up, you know, and they say, oh, my God, she's an unmarried mother. Or do you know, and my mother would use that terrible term. Oh, but he's an antsy boy. Just awful stuff. But that was just normality in what we grew up in. And I think also the fact that we have grown up in an education, or certainly I grew up in an education system that discouraged questioning. That was considered Absolutely. bad or cheeky. I remember my mother going to a parent-teacher meeting and being told by a teacher 
that I was an insolent child because I did nothing but ask questions. This was in a maths class. <laughs> Which would have been you know? the perfect thing. Like, that's what we wanted. To... But if you, look at, <laughs> if you look at some of our language around, around child behavior, right? So in Ireland, we don't tell children not to be naughty. We tell them not to be bold. It's like, God, you want your children to be bold. Why wouldn't yeah. we want our children to be tenacious and, and demanding? And brave and, and, yeah. brave and courageous and forthright and, you know, aggressively questioning what's right. Ask, and ask, the, ask, and, yes. And ask, don't, ask, don't just and yeah. stand up for others. No, and if something feels wrong, say yeah. it, you know, yeah. say it. And, and that's one thing that I felt great. I know it was actually Gavin in this instance, but I remember him coming home from school and saying the teacher was being mean to another boy and him standing up and saying it. And, you know, she was doing horrible stuff like making, she says, mum, she asked me to get up and tell him what was wrong with his essay, you know, and she was just doing it to be mean, yeah. you know. But anyway, um, yeah, that's a whole other story I won't even kind of go into because I went down to complain to the teacher and she ended up actually manipulating him. He had basically stopped wanting to go to school. When I asked him why, he said it's really unpleasant in the class. She keeps him bullying this particular boy. And he said, I just really don't like it. And it makes me feel bad. And I don't want and he used to love I mean, he used to cry on Saturdays when he couldn't go to Neenry, you know, <laughs> he was that sort of kid that always wanted to go. So I said, right, I'm going down to the school and I'm going to say, look, he's uncomfortable or whatever. And I said, but I do not want you to tell Gavin that I have been down to this school. And I, I was a very young child at this stage, you know, really quite young, six or seven maybe. And I was standing outside the school gate waiting for him and he ran out with tears streaming down his face. And I knew straight away she'd said, do you know what she had said to him? She said, you have to go to school. If you don't go to school, your mother will be sent to prison. Now, that's not that long ago. Gavin is still in his 20s. So you you are the problem. It's not my behavior. It's not the fact that I am psychologically abusive. The problem here is that you're not coming to school and I'm not going to confront or question my own behavior. You're just going to have to come to school and I'm going to keep being who I am because that's what gives me a sense of power and purpose <laughs> in the world. I'm just a, and, a nasty um, person. And if you don't, by the way, your mother's going to go to prison. I mean, in and of itself, <laughs> it was an abusive thing to do. Yeah, yeah. I like to finish and we've covered loads. You've given loads of advice, but I do like to kind of just end with, you know, if you were to pick one tip for people on, you know, surviving and thriving in life, what would it be? I think that the thing that I would advise people to do more than anything else is, is just to be gentle. Be gentle with yourself and be gentle with other people, particularly at moments of stress or challenge or pressure. It's just to take a breath to remove yourself to either a state of mind or a space where you can just just mind yourself for a minute and just catch your breath and just think about what you need right now and then try to provide it and to be gentle, right? To trust yes. in, in the goodness that, that lies in your own heart and ultimately in the hearts of other people and to find a way back in connecting in that goodness. And because everything great comes from that. So, yeah, I, I guess my, my biggest tip for, for thriving and living would be to be gentle. And what a fantastic tip that is. So much of the hardship and pain that we experience in life is in a way self-inflicted. We are way too hard on ourselves. When it comes to ourselves, we're often unforgiving. We blame ourselves far too often. We put too much pressure on ourselves. We expect too much of ourselves. Be gentle with yourself and others. Oh, it's just such simple advice. I'm going to give it a go. I hope you do too. 
Now, during lockdown one, Colm, an accomplished cook, thought about what he could do to help others through the lockdown. And he came up with the idea of sharing step-by-step recipes and photos of the beautiful food that he cooked every evening. Tune in on Thursday when I chat to Colm about that experience and his love of cooking for others. I'll also share some tips on the best food for brain health. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. If you like the show, please, please do rate it, like it, support it, share it. Every little helps. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and be gentle. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.